Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. To the Nyler Nine Podcast. <laughs> we are going to be talking about spooky music today. Spooky. And because it's all about spooky music, we have a spooky atmosphere. My my atmosphere is always spooky, thank you very much. But I've 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 upped the ante somewhat now. Spooky girl autumn is in the spooky house. Spooky girl autumn, yes. Um yeah, so we welcome to the Nine Nine Podcast. It's myself, Nine Nine, and you're you can hear the voice of Andre Cleary as ever. Hello. There we are. Um she Andre is very excited about today because uh, it allows her to flex some muscles that she doesn't maybe normally get flex. But Best day of the year. So she is a spooky girl, so it, it means that we are going to be talking almost exclusively about music of a spooky, supernatural nature. Uh, music that suits a Halloween time of year. Music from horror films. All sorts of stuff, really. What about this piece of music now below? It's a well-known, such a well-known piece of music that it's practically a cliche, would you say? I think not. Because cliches are usually understood to be bad, right? Whereas this the Toccata and Fugue in D minor. What's a positive word for a cliche? I don't know. Just You should just play standard. it all the time. A standard, yeah. It, it genuinely puts the willies up me still. And I've been listening to this for a very, very long time around this time of year. And when, especially, you know, when you listen to the full piece, it just, oh my God, it opens and it really feels like you're looking into the fiery depths of hell. It's beautiful. It's amazing. 
I love organs as well. What is the name of the music, the piece of music there? This is the uh, Toccata and Fugue in D minor. So it was, was it often used in horror films in the early times? Like what, what is the origin of it? Do you know, in terms of, it's just I association. I don't remember where, I know where I first heard it was in one of the Treehouse of Horror episodes of The Simpsons. Um, yeah. But I'm not sure, was it in Nosferatu? So I think it actually was it was used in uh, various silent films in the 1920s and in 1931 was featured in the opening credits to the 19, uh, in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That's so what it is. That cemented yes. the song's association with kind of scaring audiences and horror films and, and all that kind of stuff. Mm. But, you know, I mean, the Irish people are uh, basically responsible for Halloween. So it's about time we owned it. Um, you know, it comes from the uh, Celtic Festival sound, as we all know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll be getting into that uh, uh, throughout the course of the episode. Yes. Um, and uh, I'm really interested to see, you know, how... For me, I've been, been playing a lot of uh, music this week that is of a you know, a horror or supernatural Halloween nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's so interesting. We're going to be talking a lot about, you know, different techniques and different ways in which people uh, have associated darkness maybe with, uh, with music mm-hmm. and how it becomes a short hand or signifier for, for music or for things that are, are of a darker nature. Mm-hmm. And this goes right up to an album that was released last week that we uh, we will touch briefly on towards the end of the episode as well. Mm. But first, it is, uh, as ever, it is time for our reasons to be cheerful. Or reasons and, uh, to be fearful. <laughs> um, so my reason to be cheerful is totally Halloween related. Fearful, now, come on, lean in. Fearful. Well, it's fearful because <laughs> it is, you know, Halloween music. Um, I put up a playlist today of... Uh, Spooky tunes for Halloween, um, lots of good stuff on there. Um, I really enjoy, um, I have a particular penchant for um, yeah. kind of synthy 80s Halloween music, like John Carpenter and stuff like that. I thought, we'll I thought you would. Bit. I thought that would be yeah. your area of things, definitely. Totally. But uh, this time around, I think the playlist I put up is kind of, you know, it has a bit of that, but it has a lot of the kind of horrorcore elements of, of rap stuff that we're, we're going to be talking about a bit as well. Um, some kind of darker ambient music from even Keely Forsyth, a song I heard a couple of weeks ago called Photograph, uh, the likes of Chelsea Wolfe, um, electronic producers like Actress. And Penelope Traps and Iconica. So lots of really good spooky stuff in there. And generally, you know, I mean, it took me a while, but I'm 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 in the spooky sort of mood now for sure, because of those kind of playlists, putting those together, but also because it's Bram Stoker Festival uh, at the moment. And while Bram Stoker Festival can't um while Bram Stoker happen, can't be with us right now. He can't be with us right now. Um he does exist online. <laughs> and there there are some there are some uh, Bram Stoker events happening at the moment. Uh, starting today I think uh, online so there is one I have I'm set up for which is I'm really interested about it uh, it seems to be an audio a spooky audio tale that you have to lie in your bed and listen to so when is that happening um, it's happening tomorrow at seven o'clock it's actually happening in I think kind of right now otherwise it's called um, Eternal it's oh it's happening over the weekend 
Um, you can see bramstokerfestival.com and you can sign up to it. Um, it sounds really interesting. It's, it's an audio experience designed for one person to experience at home in their bed. Mm. Um, you download an app and you listen, basically. So apparently it's very, very good. So I'm looking forward to, to checking that out. That is called Eternal. That is on Bram Stoker Festival. There's also a previous guest on the Not Unknown podcast, uh, Stephen Shannon, who's in Mount Alaska, is one of the two composers who has soundtracked a film called I Am Not Legend, uh, which is a kind of rework of the cult horror film Night of the Living Dead. Um, so it has a pulsing killer soundtrack from Irish composers Matthew Nolan and Stephen Shannon. Um, that is available now on uh, Bram Stoker's website, bramstokerfestival.com, to watch. So look, we're getting into the mood of things, basically. I'm oh, having yeah. a great time. I watched a film called Wreck last night, which I've Oh, Wreck. Yeah, Wreck is fun. Yeah. Yeah, my housemate is a big fan of it, so I was mm. delighted to see it. So, Oh, uh, my great. God. I think I think this only came out within the past couple of hours, but have you seen the trailer for the new Michael Bay film with the producers <laughs> of The Purge based on COVID-19, based on, like, this pandemic that we're in now? And it's basically set, like, America has been in... Uh, lockdown for four years and the virus has mutated and spread to people's brains and it's a sort of like a you know, you know the way the first purge film kind of just takes place within like one house and people are trying to get in i've never seen the purge films. uh niall just you have to just watch them and you have to watch all of them they're masterpieces i have a lot i have a lot to catch up on. i know oh, they're masterpieces i absolutely love them i mean like they're not but they are to me <laughs> um but ba- yeah so it's it's looks essentially like a horror film maybe maybe a zombie film i'm not quite sure but the trailer looks really good um okay. and i'm really excited for it um and i might probably be the only person in the world who's gonna watch it because <laughs> i don't i don't blame people not wanting to like interact with pandemic content at the moment but when i watched it i yeah. was like yeah yeah i'll do this i'll watch this but it was interesting that was interesting about watching rec last night because mm. it was basically uh, very pandemic um, related in terms of infections and yes. all that kind of stuff yeah. and quarantine and all so I didn't realise that at all mm. which was interesting um, so yeah do you have another reason to be cheerful um, fearful? reason to be fearful um, a plant arrived for me today a ficus um, and I didn't know it was coming so that was scary um, I got a fright because I didn't order it and it came but it's from my friend Nadia it wasn't a killer plant. It wasn't a killer. Well, I don't know. I've only had it a couple of hours, maybe. Um, <laughs> and then some wine arrived for me as well from my friends because it's my birthday on Monday and I'm just really happy. Well, let me be the first to wish you on air a happy birthday. Thank you. Um, happy birthday, Andrea Cleary. I will be. This is the last time you'll see me in my 20s. So enjoy it oh, while it lasts. God. I know. I, know. I thought you were older. <laughs> <Joking. laughs> Thanks, Matt. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> No. Um, okay, so where are we going to start with? I think let's start about, you know, the conventions of dark uh, horror music. Uh, a lot of it is, is very closely related to, you know, Halloween itself and sound and and like what is sound? Obviously, a lot of people maybe it took me a long time to before I was I realized that we kind of the Irish Celtic people had started um the sound festival which became halloween costumes and masks were worn festivals in an attempt to mimic the evil spirits or hate them and there's all sorts of rituals around 
those kind of things, letting uh, spirits into your home and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's why they would set bonfires to frighten away evil spirits. Mm. Sometimes where And masks. also to mark the the end of the harvest season. And what something so lovely about bonfires that I only learned recently is that your obviously your neighborhood would get together and light this bonfire. But before you do that, you would um extinguish all of the fires in your house and then everyone would come together and light then their house fires from kindling from the bonfire so it's kind of this community based lightness going into like the darker months which i really really like i thought that was amazing one of the things that you know is often said first of all i should say that the practice of mumming is the the mummers um going door to door and saying songs to the dead is very much an Irish tradition that actually needs to come back a bit. Um, it's something that we should embrace more and even dress up as more. It doesn't seem to be something that is very popular, but it's kind of, it's a very unique thing and it's something that we should uh, embrace. So uh, I like the idea of Halloween carols, like ho- Halloween carol singers going around. Yeah, do you know, I was looking up some Halloween kind of, see if there was any, like what kind of songs there were, any mm. recordings. It was quite hard to find anything specific, but if anybody has any uh, leads on that that would be great i'd definitely love to explore that on a future date um but i guess you know the thing was that uh you know course like everything the catholic church got involved and uh, to replace the pagan holiday with a catholic one and in the 8th century the catholic church moved all saints day to november 1st um, trying to replace a pagan holiday originally. And All Souls um, Day to November 2nd, which is my birthday. Exactly. Ah, yes. Yeah. Um, so, there are there are some things that are put out there that are maybe uh, not quite true about all of that as well, in terms of, in a, uh, like, the Catholic Church trying to have rules around uh, music. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah. So I'm basically going to talk about all of the different ways in which the devil and music have been intertwined, whether that is musicologically linked in actual intervals or links between the devil and a musician and maybe uh some kind of a deal being made. Okay, so I'm going to start off by telling you about uh, the Danse Macabre, which is a French allegory from the Middle Ages. So we're going right back. Um, And this allegory tries to draw attention to the universality of death. Um, And it was especially kind of interested in making it clear that everybody dies, no matter if you are very, very poor or very, very rich, or if you're aristocracy or what kind of level, well, I suppose this is the Middle Ages, so where you were in like the feudal system, you die. And it's said that on Halloween night every year, death appears um, and he calls forth the dead from their graves to dance for him while he plays a fiddle. Um, and his skeletons dance for him until the rooster crows at dawn and then they return to their graves until next year. So there was um, this French medievalist called Francis Rapp wrote, um, Christians were moved by the sight of the infant Jesus playing on his mother's knee. Their hearts were touched by the Pieta and patron saints reassured them their presence. But all the while the dance macabre urged them not to forget the end of all earthly things. Um, and this this thing Kind of, you know, alongside Samhain, it's quite interesting. The dance macabre was enacted at village pageants and uh, in courts with people 
who dressed up as corpses, um, specifically kind of from various uh, strata of society. And that m- may have been the origin of costumes being worn during All Hallow Tide, which is separate to Samhain. So it's interesting that this this tradition kind of, you know, came about in two different locations, kind of, you know, mainland Europe, and then Samhain was um, kind of more Celtic-based stuff. Um, so the dance macabre has been kind of used within music a lot, um, but uh, Camille Saint-Saëns' piece, The Dance Macabre from 1874, this opens with a harp playing a single note, uh, D, which uh, 12 times, which evokes the 12 uh, strokes of midnight. I think, do we have a clip of the beginning of this? We could play it. I see. So that's the opening to The Dance Macabre by uh, Camille Saint-Saëns. So you hear the the single note 12 times and then the solo violin comes in and plays an A and an E flat, which forms an interval of a tritone. And that tritone has come to be known as Dialobus on Musica or The Devil in Music. Um, But tritone basically means that it spans three whole tone intervals and it splits the octave evenly in two parts. Uh, It's also called a diminished fifth or an augmented fourth. And it's it's dissonance is the thing that I think we associate with it being spooky or evil. You know, it, it sets up it sets up expectation and the unease that we feel when we hear it, besides being kind of culturally applied to it, which we'll learn in a minute is because we don't really have a clear marker of where it's going and when, if ever, it's going to be resolved. So we're kind of teetering on the edge of this idea of a resolution. You know, like when people sing Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Ti, you're just waiting to go to the Do, whereas in, with this tritone, you're you're kind of lost in the middle of the woods. You don't, there's no clear resolution for it. There's no clear direction um, for, for it to have resolution. So... Despite what people might know about this, it, this this tritone wasn't banned in medieval music. It said a lot that that this was, you know, that the Catholic Church had banned it and that it was thought that the devil would come if you played it in a church. But that actually isn't true. It was used in medieval music, but it was used quite rarely. Um, there's a piece by the medieval composer uh, per- Periton that uses kind of several tritones throughout it. And we think it wasn't you like we think that it wasn't used often because it would summon the devil, but it's actually more likely that it wasn't used because it's quite difficult to sing. Um and its dissonance just wouldn't suit the music that was being composed for the church. Sure. Um yeah. and our modern our the modern notation system that we have now wasn't used then either. Um and church music was primarily notated um or was primarily performed by vocalists. So if something was difficult to sing, you just didn't, it just didn't end up in your compositions because you weren't, you know, playing it very often on an organ or on any other kinds of instruments. It was basically just the monks. Um, so that, that piece came out in, when was it? 1874. Um, and the, the phrase, the devil in music, uh, didn't actually appear or the first instance of it appearing was actually 400 years after kind of medieval practice in this counterpoint textbook that was written by Johann Fuchs in which he says 
me conta fa es diablos on musica, which means that me, uh, as in do, re, mi, and which is the third note of the scale, and fa, as in do, re, mi, fa, which is the fourth note of the scale, um, is the devil in music, is what he's saying there. Now, me and fa don't make a tritone. That's they make an interval of a minor second, not a tritone. So, and there's there's complicated music theory as to why it's later thought to mean a tritone as opposed to a minor second that involves hexachords. But at the risk of losing people, I'll just say that there are three different kinds of hexachords, and putting the mes and fas of the different hexachords against each other caused dissonance, and that is maybe where that was coming from. It's thought, um, but the you know the me against fa is the devil in music is way more of a kind of a a rule of thumb than like an i before e except after c rather than like a warning against evil sort of thing um but this um this textbook by johann fuchs would have been read a lot in the 19th century by some romantic composers and they I I don't know if they took the phrase literally and like they read the textbook and took it literally or if they just leaned into the drama of it. But they started creating music that used a tritone to evoke a really like sinister mood. Um, I think, do we have the Dante Sonata by Liszt? So you can hear it there in uh, in Dante's Sonata, and that is, you know, maybe the definitive story of hell and the devil, which is Dante's descent through the various stages of hell. And that's those are the opening chords. So it's really it's taking the idea of this tritone and its relationship to the devil and death and evil and basing the piece like primarily around it. And there was loads of other examples in the 19th century. But then it's sort of. It sort of died out a little bit in in the 20th century um, until metal music got a hold of it. <laughs> um, I won't talk too much about metal music here um, because I think that that is a whole other. If if I if I mentioned one band, I'd have to mention them all, kind of thing. But I mean, um, Metallica's Enter Sandman is an example of the tritone being used in a similarly kind of spooky way or evil way um as well as slayer made an album called uh diablos in musica but a less evil example from the 21st century um is the opening of the simpsons when it goes the simpsons that's a tritone it's the same okay. tritone that is that is the the devil in music tritone which i think is really really interesting but i i so i was looking at all of this um all of this stuff and then I just kind of fell down a wormhole of what is it about music and the devil and and the relationship that musicians have to the devil that is so kind of prevalent no matter how no matter what century you're in no matter what kind of music you're making there's always these kind of rumors that go around so I was looking into this and like so deals with the devil even outside of music have been really prevalent in western mythology I since around the 15th century um one of the earliest instances was the German legend of Faust which is where we get 
a, a Faustian tale from in which Faust is a highly successful but dissatisfied person with his life and that leads him to make a pact with uh, the demon Metastopheles um, at a crossroads and he exchanged his soul for an unlimited knowledge and worldly pleasures. Um, so that myth started to incorporate or kind of move into music later in 1713. Uh, this guy, this musician called uh, Giuseppe Tartini claimed to have had a dream in which he... In his dream, he handed his violin to the devil and the devil played the most beautiful music he'd ever heard. Um, and during the dream, uh, Tartini made, an, made a pact with the devil for his soul. And then when he woke up, he tried desperately to transcribe the music that he'd heard the devil play. But it didn't work. Um, but what he did write was a violin sonata in G, uh, which is better known as the devil the devil's trills sonata, um, which I do. We, we do we clip of yeah. that yet. It's yeah, all, it's it really cool. So, so you can hear there, there's, there is quite a lot of harmonic resolution. It is quite beautiful and it's quite lush, but there's that sort of dissonance in, in the, in the violin part that definitely kind of, I think went on to inform a lot of what those 20th century and 19th century composers were doing with that idea. So the piece was actually successful, but he wrote afterwards that it was, quote, so inferior to what I'd heard that if I could have subsisted on any other means, I would have broken my violin and abandoned music forever, which I think is actually quite sad because the piece is beautiful, um, but it wasn't as beautiful as what the devil played. Um, and then a century later, Niccolo... Paganini, is, who is considered to be one of the greatest violin virtuosos who has ever lived. He was literally so bomb at violin that people decided like, yeah, no, that guy is definitely working with Beelzebub in some way or another. <laughs> and it's funny because he, he also looked really, really spooky. He was really pale, really tall, had like really long fingers. He was really thin. He just looked really devilly. Um, and apparently there's, there were reports of people who would like go to see his performances and like made the sign of the cross while he was playing because they were like, no man. And like, you know, reports of people seeing the devil helping him or aiding him in, in some way, like standing behind him or even wrapping his arms around him to help him like bow. Um, <laughs> and, and then, uh, and apparently he could also play flawlessly on broken strings as well um, and when he was dying when he was 54 he sent away a priest who came to read him his last rites he was like no we don't need you um, which I think is really spooky so then if you fast forward to like the 1920s and the 30s obviously deals with the devil started popping up in American blues music um, and Robert Johnson is probably the most famous uh, example of this Johnson was basically said to not be that good at guitar in his like late teens and twenties. Um, 
a, a fellow blues, blues musician, uh, Sun House, said about him, quote, such a racket you have never heard. It would make the people mad, you know. They'd come out and say, why don't y'all go in and get that guitar away from that boy? I'd come back in and scold him about it. So he wasn't very good. So Johnson, now all of this is kind of sketchy, but it's said that he was instructed to take his guitar to a crossroad near the Dockery plantation. Um, But there's claims of like, tons of different places that he could have done this. Uh, Loads of different crossroads obviously claim to be the crossroads that this happened at. Um, So he was instructed to go there at midnight. And there he was met by a large black man who was the devil, who took Robert Johnson's guitar and tuned it. Uh, The devil played a few songs for him and then returned the guitar to Johnson and he suddenly had mastery of of the instrument. So he he went on to sing quite a bit about his relationship with the devil. And he has this kind of devil's trilogy, which are the songs Crossroad Blues, which tells the story of meeting the devil and selling his soul. Hell, 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 hellhound on my trail, which kind of turns the trope of the traveling vagabond around and tells the story Uh, kind of you know the reason why he's traveling is because he has these hellhounds chasing after him and then the trilogy ends with me and the devil blues um which is just an amazing track um i think do we have me and the devil blues um yes we do we've one of them yeah So he basically like came back from this trip and was like, hey, I'm really, really sick at guitar now and I can do all these sick slides and I can play the guitar and make it sound like it's two people playing. Like I remember the first time we, we I, I had a class about blues music in my undergrad and the first time I heard a Robert Johnson, um, I think it was an instrumental guitar track. I just fully assumed it was two guitars playing um, and it wasn't. It was just him. I was like, he definitely made a deal with the devil. And he he died at 27. He was the first member of the 27 Club. Right. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm. That's cool. <clears throat> well, I mean, weird, weird, weird legacy. But um, yeah. I mean, his legacy, I mean, I guess there's probably some element of, you know, the fantastical here because, you know, uh, it's kind of been dispelled that he was. That's what had happened to him. Mm. He had acknowledged himself that there is, he did have a human teacher in those months when he was away. So maybe he just like did it really hard, played a lot and became really fucking good. But it is a yeah. long time. It is a short time to get really, really good. It, it It is such a short time. And there's obviously like cultural issues around that time of relationships between specifically black people music and the devil like those those three things there was there was a lot of kind of really problematic and harmful things that were kind of being said in the 20s and 30s about those kinds of things but it's a good story nonetheless and i love it um and then another one uh near the last track i think i'll talk about um 
is The Devil Went Down to Georgia, which is an example not of a deal with the devil, but a battle with the devil, which is just as cool, in my opinion, in which the speaker enters into a competition with the devil for his soul and he wins. He also wins a golden violin. So the lyrics are... When he came across this young man, saw an, this, this he, the devil, when he came across this young man, saw him on a fiddle and playing it hot and the devil jumped on a hickory stump and said, boy, let me tell you what I got. I guess you didn't know it, but I'm a fiddle player too. And if you'd care to take a dare, I'll make a bet with you. Now you play a pretty good fiddle boy, but give the devil his due. I, I'll bet a fiddle of gold against your soul because I think I'm better than you. The boy said, my name's Johnny and I think it might be a sin, but I'll take your bet. You're going to regret because I'm the best there's ever been. Johnny, rosin up your bow and play your fiddle hard because hell's, hell's broke loose in Georgia and the devil deals his cards. And if you win, you get this shiny fiddle made, made of gold. But if you lose, the devil gets your soul. And spoiler alert for a really old song, Johnny wins and the devil hangs his head in shame and heads back to hell. And it's awesome. And then, yeah, and then just the last one I wanted to point out. I mean, there, there are tons and tons of like rock musicians, but I came across this interview with Bob Dylan today Um in which he he was asked by the interviewer, like, what to what do you owe your success? You know, one of those kind of questions. And he said, like, oh, I, I made a bargain a long time ago to get where I am today. And then when the interviewer asked him who he made the bargain with, he just laughed and said, with the great commander, <laughs> which I loved. Um, and then I, I, I got... I went down this wormhole into this documentary, which you can find on YouTube if anyone's interested in it. I imagine a lot of people will not be interested in it, but I found it interesting. Um, called They Sold Their Souls for Rock and Roll. It's a Christian documentary about rock music and the devil and how like <laughs> those two things are intertwined and how your kids should not be listening to rock music. And it's absolutely fascinating. It's it's in five parts on YouTube. Definitely don't buy it or anything but like um it's really 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 interesting so yeah that's my my uh, short and incomplete history of the devil and music uh, we have a clip here of uh some preaching against rock oh yeah 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 play that these men come down here from new york and from florida to to find out my reasons on rock and roll music and why i preach against it and i believe with all of my heart that it is a contributing factor to our juvenile delinquency of today. I 100% believe it. Why I believe that is because I know how it feels when you sing it. I know what it does to you. And I, I know uh, the evil feeling that you feel when you sing it. I know the, the, the lost position that you get into in the beat. Well, uh, if you talk to the average teenager of today and you ask them what it is about rock and roll music that they like, and they'll, the first thing they'll say is the beat, the beat, the beat. The beat, the beat. <laughs> um, yeah, that's really interesting. And then, obviously, as we go further into uh, popular music and rock music, then you know the myth of uh, the ideas of like, oh, Led Zeppelin songs have, uh, you know, uh, messages. Backwards in them messages. When you play them do you do you yeah. remember where you were when you first heard that? I think it, I don't know. I think it was just always around, wasn't it? Like uh, people, oh, you play that backwards, you can hear the devil. Yeah, I remember yeah. like starting to hang out with like some guys who were into rock music, and I was starting to get into Led Zeppelin. And one of them was like, "Yeah, if you play Stairway to Heaven backwards, it says uh, what are the? It's like it's my sweet Satan, something in his like tool shed. It's Satan, and I I don't know how we played it backwards. 
Maybe yeah. we probably just got a video or something. I don't I don't think he had it on like a record player or anything. Um but when you listen to it, like I I think you can hear it. I think that's really cool. <laughs> um but I remember it scaring the shit out of me the first time I heard it. First time I heard the word Satan in like a a song being played backwards. It's insane. <laughs> oh my god. Should we try and find it? Hold on a second. Oh, it's one hundred percent on YouTube. You'll definitely be able to find it. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. That's it. That's the only part. <laughs> yeah, and in a world without the internet, that is a uh, oh powerful message. Can you imagine? A powerful thing to believe in. Imagine, like, it, it, it's genuinely, I, I remember genuinely getting a fright the first time I heard it. I was like, oh my God, maybe rock and roll music is like the devil. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're younger, when when I was younger, certainly, the pe- the things that people got into music with was like, oh, rock music and Led Zeppelin, and then it would you inevitably this would come up. But maybe that I don't know if that's probably I think kids are probably still doing that now. You know, like talking about that and uh, talking about doing a Ouija board and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's always still there. That kind of you know the other of of that is very illuminating and uh, unsettling and uh, attractive to a lot of mm. people. Well, I think um, as well, like now culturally, we've a lot more of um i th- i think a lot of people have a lot more empathy towards um like the satanic practice because it isn't really anything to do with like worshiping evil or anything it's just kind of like hey treat everyone nice it's slightly nihilistic but it's like hey don't eat animals and treat people nice and the church is bad and that's basically it it's not <laughs> it's not anything evil like at all it's basically just just like antithetical to the church and i think we've a way better understanding of that sort of thing but also we have obviously uh, you know it's a century of cinema behind us as well so we have this aesthetic appreciation for it as well Do you know yeah and I think that's what we get into next because a lot of uh, what we're going to be talking about in the next while is kind of like horror mu- music and movies and obviously hmm. there's a lot of satanic stuff in terms of themes for music. But one thing that keeps appearing, you know, like you talk about, you know, the characteristics of music that is considered suitable for horror music. Mm. You mentioned dissonance there um, earlier and the repetition of notes leading to a feeling of suspense. And in sp- specifically, there is a, a thing called Deus Ere, I believe D- it's called. Deus Ere, yeah. Deus Ere, and that is the Day of Wrath. Mm. So these are four descending minor notes um, that has appeared again and again and been used now as shorthand in horror films mm. as an example of a, of a foreboding or to signify foreboding. Um, you can hear it very famously in uh, the opening of The Shining. So I'll play that here just to give you an impression of it. And it's in loads of different movies. Like there's a, I think it's in the uh, Omen as well. And yeah, there's yeah. a video on YouTube that is six minutes long and, and has all of the all of the examples of it in horror films. That is the Shining. I still get shivers when I hear that. Yeah. Here is a lesser known film, which is called What Evil Drives the Car. (laughs) Do you know, you hear that in so many horror films now, you hear it so often. And here's another example. It's actually here. Here's a good one um, from 
Friday the 13th. It's spooky, it's suggestive, it's used an awful lot. And it's kind of shorthand for, for scariness mm. and, and spookiness. Do you know what I've just realized? And yeah. I've just realized it's exactly like in in Frozen 2. <laughs> Do you know the, the main song in Frozen 2? I haven't seen Frozen 2 yet. Oh, okay. Never mind. <laughs> well, it is. Like the, the main theme that runs through, like the recurring theme in Frozen 2 is like... Ba, 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 uh, which is essentially that, but it's yeah. <laughs> Frozen 2 just using the DS here. <laughs> That's gas. <laughs> that is also used in The Exorcist as well. Mm. Um, and we will talk a little bit about that as well. But I think overall, uh, just to give you uh, an impression of, you know, where, how music gets used uh, to s- denote uh, kind of scariness and spookiness in things and how it's gone. Like even um, in 1932, when they started to really, you know, use music uh, uh, that wasn't just performed by an orchestra in front of the screen. Mm. Uh, in The Mummy, the opening titles, the, the way that they used um, a very famous song, Get air gigabit like, fiber broadband with super fast <laughs> downloading. Seamless streaming. Video will play after ad. <laughs> Work, life, balanced. From just $29.99 a month. Air. Let's make possible. So this Aero is the is money. To the money to the mummy, which is uses Swan Lake. Mm-hmm. And even that song became something that was used an awful lot in the 30s to denote kind of maybe a suspenseful atmosphere. Mm. And then you look at maybe the soundtrack to uh, Frank's Waxman score for The Bride of Frankenstein, a very icy, cold strings used in that as well. Let me see, find that one here. So when we get out of that period in, in in movies of where it was like Frankenstein, Wolfman and all that kind of stuff, um, we get into a kind of the 50s and the 60s where, you know, a lot of novelty was uh, imbued in Halloween songs. And obviously the most famous one probably is Monster Mash from 1962. And I think a lot of these songs... Which I will, I now, will a lot perform of these songs, for you in full now. <laughs> okay um let me play monster mash where is it going there it is he did the mash. it caught on in a flash he did the mash it did the monster mash oh. from my laboratory in the castle east oh. the master bedroom where the vampires feast oh. the ghouls all came from their humble abode oh. to get a jolt from my electrode they did the mash they did the monster mash. The monster mash. It was a graveyard. Banger. That's an absolute banger. <laughs> so a lot Isn't of the songs. Isn't it so funny 50- that it's it's so funny that they that they had like a a scary spooky song with all those like baparoos and that like kind of shoe up. Yeah, sounds. I mean that's what happened. A lot of 
a lot of those kind of doo-wop uh, songs were were written because they were trying to, uh, the bands that wrote these songs, those bands like The Verdicts, who wrote a song called Mummy's Ball in 1961. Mm. There were novelty songs, Frankenstein's Den from 1958 from the Hollywood Flames. Um, and they all were basically just trying to get on the radio. And it was a way of trying to get on the radio. And that was really interesting. It was a very particular point in time, but those songs have endured because they're novelty, but they, they last. And, um, and then you get the kind of stuff that would happen in the hammer horror stuff of the 50s, 60s and 70s, kind of very much frenetic, jarring scores from Dracula, the plague of, jump, of the zombies, the devil rides out, that kind of stuff. If we can get into one of my favorite films and my, one of my favorite scary films is uh, Psycho from Alfred Hitchcock. Um, the famous score from Bernard Herrmann, Never mind the fact that, um, you know, the film itself is groundbreaking in many, many ways. <laughs> Andreas, we're, we're, in a, we're in a, just dressed up for Halloween suddenly. Um, <laughs> never mind that, you know, the film's main character, spoiler for somebody who hasn't seen the film from uh, 60 years ago, um, is uh, dies uh, before halfway through, probably. Mm. Um, there is... A lot to be said for how Bernard Herrmann's score uh, unsettles and became a standard for jump scare music as well. I mm. love, and I'm going to play this now because I love the scene setting of the the prelude of a Bernard Herrmann score, which uh, is so um, dizzying and has so much going on and uh, unsettling. And I love this um, because it it repeats itself throughout the whole score. So here is the prelude from Bernard Herrmann's song. And yeah, it's a great example of just a really, obviously, it's so wistful, but it's so like creepy as well. It's got like, mm. it's got rhythm and all that kind of stuff as well. And it repeats. It is a fantastic score and it, is, it makes me want to watch the film again, to be honest. Um, that's so one of my that's favorite what I've been films. Doing this week. I absolutely love Psycho. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, it's, it's such a masterpiece. And the first uh, instance of a toilet flushing on screen was in Psycho. That's correct. Yeah. Yes. Um, and obviously, you know, it's most famous for its shower scene um, the murder, which happens in the bathroom. Not in a um, sexy way, guys. Get your minds out of the gutter. <laughs> but the, yeah, the interesting thing about the actual visual part of it is that you never see a knife <clears throat> enter the body. It's all very suggested. Um, mm. But it's the music that really does that for you. So mm. we play a bit of this most famous music now. Here's the scene.
So, a very famous piece of music, uh, one that's been used in pop culture a lot. Um, uh, the Beastie Boys actually uh, sampled that one in on the Paul's Boutique uh, as well. And the previous one was uh, used as uh, the basis for a Busta Rhymes song mm. as well. What I love about that music is the kind of how suggestive it is of like, you've got the really frantic, high-pitched repetition for obviously like the stabbing part but then when when you when those like deeper more like guttural and this isn't actually something that I realized until now when those come in they just immediately suggest that kind of finality and that oh no she's she's dead like or she she is dying so she is dead and you don't need to see any of it on screen like it, it's just it's there in the music and that's something you hear from a lot of people who you know when, when you're discussing horror films with people more often than not like the the amount of times you hear people say it's the music that gets me like it's and it it is so it, it, pro- probably more than any other genre horror relies on its score and ha- have it, having an excellent score more more than anything else um because as we know from kind of you know 21st century horror films they're not exactly known for having the best scripts in the world or the best dialogue in the world or like being the the best shot. Obviously, there are horror films out there that are masterpieces, but the majority of the genre is kind of not as concerned with that. It is mostly concerned with just scaring the shit out of you or creeping you out or making you kind of feel weird around gore. So it really does rely on that. And thrillers as well really rely on that kind of sense of unease and unrest and you know dissonance and um feeling wrong-footed because you don't know where the resolution is both in the story and and in the music as well yeah um and famously you know uh, for someone who was such an author and would take a huge credit and put people in the great duress alfred hitchcock himself did actually credit uh, he said that 30% of the effect of Psycho was due to the music. So, you know, a bit, it, imagine Psycho without that uh, music and it wouldn't be nearly as effective. Mm. And as we go further from the 60s into the 70s, we get the likes of, you know, The Exorcist um, and Christoph Penderecki's score and obviously the use of tubular bells. Which apparently Michael Fields wasn't happy with. Really? Oh, well, I can imagine that, mm. you know. You can imagine why he wasn't happy with it. It's a it's a beautiful piece of music on its own, but it now is. it's just its association with the film yeah. is a interesting thing. It's almost synonymous with it now. So completely, Pe- and then people know it as as the Exorcist music. Um, it's, yeah, yeah, it's co- become completely uh, to, to the to the point where you can scare someone by just playing it. Yeah, exactly. Even if they haven't seen the and film. Then, <laughs> Do you know much about the technique of sound mass, Andrea? No, I don't think so. Um, it's the, well, it's apparently the result of compositional techniques. Uh, the whole thing is that it's it's used a lot in horror films to like the building mass of instruments that kind of suggest that something's going to happen. Mm. So that is used. That was used a lot in The Exorcist, and it's a technique that is used in a lot of horror films to suggest that something is going to happen. It's basically. As far as I can As in gather, like build, building one instrument on, t- on top of another to the point yes. that it feels like it's going to explode kind of thing. Okay, yeah. Yes, I believe that's what it is. And um, so, uh, yeah, another technique that was used, you know, but then there's the kind of minimalism uh, aspect of, of music in, in using horror. Like you look at, like it's not an, exactly a horror film, but it, uh, the Jaws, uh, John Williams' two-note signature. 100% a horror film. Such a, yeah, Definitely yeah, a horror okay. film. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. 
It is, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, that's absolutely iconic, and everyone knows it uh, pretty much in the entire world. But as you go into mm. the 80s, then you get the likes of, you know, The Shining, as we mentioned earlier on, the kind of um, Friday the 13th. And then this man who uh, famously, you know, as a he was both a director and a composer, his name is John Carpenter, play a bit of uh, Halloween, his first uh, Halloween film. First, I've listed the ad. I assume you're going to cut out the ads. <laughs> so, John Carpenter, obviously, fully known for his like synthesizers and and his love of synthesizers, whether it was a horror film or whether it was something like Big Trouble in Little China or Assault on Precinct Thirteen. I'm fully very that, disconcerting. That cat. You know that cat that's going around jamming to music? Yeah. <laughs> and I guess, you know, for me anyway, the 80s is really uh, synonymous with um, synthesizers and horror music. A lot of uh, horror music was uh, was synthesizer based. It became cheaper to use uh, to build orchestral music. But there was also another strain of music, which I love myself. I only play a bit of it here, but the likes of like the Italian kind of horror stuff. Suspiria mm. and Tenebre, stuff like that. Goblin is the band um, who are responsible for a lot of that stuff. The main team from Suspiria sounds like this. And I guess it was interesting because it was more like the a live band doing this. They actually played in Vicar Street a few years back. And then didn't um, Tom York do the soundtrack for the remake? He did, yeah. Just yeah, really like wonderful music on its own, in its own right. Ones that, and it actually, you know, the likes of uh, Tenebre was used most famously uh, as as a sample actually um, by um, you remember Justice. Mm, yeah. Uh, let me see, Justice uh, Tenebre. French electro pop group. Yeah. So. So that is the Tenebre soundtrack, and then they had a song called um, Phantom. So that was using the Tenebre original sample from Justice, the song is called Phantom. And as we go further in then, you know Niall, how how much how much do you wish you were putting on some kind of spooky horror night? I am putting on an a spooky IRL horror one. <laughs> night right now. No, an I an IRL one. Yeah, well, uh we are doing a Lumo Halloween uh gig this uh Saturday. Yeah, I was I was setting yeah. you up for that. Um and I will be <laughs> you know, one of my one of my favorite bits of music uh, although it's very controversial now because, for obvious reasons, it's Thriller. Um, I didn't know if we were going to... Yeah, well, it's such a wonderful piece of music, but, you know, uh, I, I'm not going to go there, really, but I, the way that I can justify uh, 
uh, listening to that song is an actual kind of a cover. Uh, in It's called, I only discovered this a few years ago. It's called uh, Doing It in a Haunted House by Yvonne Cage, or Gage. And um, it is an absolutely wonderful song from 1984. It's pretty much thriller, but with like, female vocals on it. And uh, uh, I love this. I'm going to play it very briefly here. Yvonne, come here. Oh, it is thriller. I love that. Here we go. I love that. I'm alone in the bed and the noise is bringing us up to out the fight. Whispers getting louder, but time is gone. I must prepare to die. But life flashes before me. I paint this something grabs to do with me. Ah, look, that gets me, that gets me enough, uh, that gets me the thriller buzz for sure. And uh, It's like the most Niall Byrne <laughs> song I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. <laughs> that is such a banger. I love, I love what she did with the, with the thriller Yeah, theme. she's a Chicago musician. Going, going yeah. up the scale. Oh uh, man, 1984, that's awesome. um, I just, I really like, I love that song so much. That's my Halloween song. If I had that to pick sick. a Halloween song for, for G-Dang, um, mm. Um, but you know, like then there's lots of others, a lots of others. But uh, that's my absolute favorite. And then <clears throat> when we talk, go back to talking about like uh, music in use in horror films, and you know, the interesting thing I guess in the last uh, a couple of the most notable things, obviously, you know, we've had um, a resurgence of the synthesizer music because we're kind of. Um, have you read Simon Reynolds' book um, Retromania? It's really interesting. Uh, no, not yet. I actually I, meant to I have borrow a copy it from of it. you. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I'll just give it to you. Yeah, um, it's yeah. great because it's like talks about how you know we're basically always mining twenty years in the past about uh, our you know the style and the things that we love because things have gone far enough uh, in the future that you know that sounds distant, and then a new generation discovers it and makes it their own. It's like mm-hmm. you're seeing now with the early '90s style and all that kind of stuff, or twenty or thirty years in the past, and then what comes back around is something that happened in, in it again. So in movies that has happened, obviously most famously in Stranger Things with the title sequence and, and uh, the composers. This is one of my favorites. <laughs> it is so good. Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein, who are responsible for the soundtrack. 
And really, that soundtrack made the show. It did. Yeah. I remember watching Stranger Things for the first time and obviously like a lot of people were talking about it and hyping up this new show and the opening credits came on and I was I was immediately like okay spooky synthesizers Stephen King font yeah the font as well um, like just the the slow kind of fade out until it just says Stranger Things it like I I'm still ride or die about Stranger Things to this day I absolutely adore it absolutely adore it and if you haven't listened beyond the title sequence like just listen to the the soundtracks on their own they're 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 all all three of them are on uh on spotify they are stunning like there's really excellent beautiful pieces of music that you could imagine being performed by like an orchestra or a quartet or something in in a slightly different show but just kind of transposed onto synthesizers and electronic um electronic instruments yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's a amazing it's a brilliant brilliant soundtrack yeah, the and the other maybe one I'd be thinking of most recently is It Follows by Disaster Piece, the soundtrack to that. Oh, a yeah. really kind of um, lovely synth sound on that one as well. Here's a bit of the theme from it. And that's a film I'd like to watch again now, I'd say. Me too. Yeah. Maybe tonight. I'm thinking I might watch it tonight. Actually, it's, I, my housemates oh, haven't seen man. it. It it's it's annoying because it's one of those films where you explain the the plot or the premise to people, and they're like, "Oh, that sounds dumb," and I'm like, "No, it's brilliant!" Yeah. Like, and that kind of brings me up, like in terms of music. Then you know, we've always had like horror used as as kind of a trope or whatever and then like even though it had nothing to do with it um there was a you know a genre called witch house which was kind of considered um like it was never really spooky it was just like in a whole aesthetic of people using upside down crosses and their names and all this kind of stuff just to be obscure mm. uh it's it seemed a lot it didn't it was a fad that didn't really like last that long i mean can i even think of any of the bands um who were involved in which house can you remember any of them um that jj band was one that was kind of associated with and then it was just very obscure sounding names like uh balam akab uh like even uh holy other who's actually quite good and then there's a one called uh salem obvious one and then did remember the band him did they have an upside down crucifix as the eye or something maybe or yeah they, yeah they, they had or or maybe it was a pen a and then there was one that was just called uh oh which is like five o's oh. in a row um, are you sure it's not well, a, maybe it was a ooh. it's hard to know it's open Ooh. to interpretation, it seems. Um, yeah. And then, you know, in the 90s, there was a hip-hop genre uh, called horrorcore, which uh, Cool Keith uh, uh, claimed to invent because um, the first use of the term appeared on uh, 
KMC's 1991 album Three Men with the Power of Ten um, even though that's when it appeared Cool Keith brought significant attention to horror influence hip hop music with his lyrical content and the Ultra Magnet MCs and in 1996 when he was doing like Dr. Octagon and all that kind of stuff he'd made all these science fiction fiction influence music and uh, one album called Dr. Onicologist as well so there was a lot going on there uh-huh. um, there's and think of the likes of the grave diggers and stuff like that very much uh, you know mm. unsettling dark music um but you know they used that kind of tropes like rizza and prince paul were involved in grave diggers and six foot deep is the album that a lot of people would would reference in that style um but then you know uh, we look at a in a in a horror in a modern uh context uh leading up to an album that actually was released last week and um, you've got the likes of Denzel Curry and HO909, also called Horror, and JPEG Mafia, who use quite hard, um, spooky kind of sounds in a lot of their music, um, which could be considered um, horrorcore. But one act who actually really have leaned into uh, the horrorcore sound because they said they they have had two albums out in the last two years, uh, mm-hmm. and they're called Clipping. And uh, Clipping... Who who we have embraced with open yeah. arms. Like we, we I think as as soon as that album came out last year, we were like, Oh yes, yes, yes. We'll we'll have this. Yeah, so they much. released an album so pop last year called There Existed an Addiction to Blood and uh, really like perfect music like there's a song on it called Nothing Is Safe. I think we've definitely played it on the podcast oh, before. I'll play the start of it just to give So good. can we can we yeah. hear it again? Safe and sound, this our family do. Only homies around, everyone here is crew. Something foul in the air, something feeling askew. Wind is in the pipes, it's that whistle calling for you. Don't holler, it's cool. Windows boarded and sealed, doors are bolted and locked. Pride of cooking on pace, weaponry fully stocked. Body sleeping in shifts, other bodies keep watch. Bullets of an antibody cop running up in the spot. The pop, the pop, drop, the lights are drop low. Something shot from the trees. Went straight through the front door. Homie dropped to his knees. Blood seeping from his neck as he struggled to breathe. Wooden floors stained wet gets off. The more that he bleeds, he leaves. Believed it, and no one told me what was coming, but it creeping on the come up. Now it's right up in your face. Face it, let it resonate up in your bone a minute. When you shiver, make a sliver big enough for it to have a space. Ripped life slipping away, maybe you can make it out with just a little bit of grace. But it truly doesn't give a fuck about the fear you feel, and it is here to make you understand that nothing is safe. Nothing is, nothing is safe. Nothing is safe. So that was clipping. The album was called There Existed uh, an Addiction in Blood, but only last week did they release another album that is very similar in tone to this. 
and uh, it is called uh, Visions of Bodies Being Burned, which further leads into the kind of idea of horror. So they have actually they have horror H O nine nine O nine on one of the tracks, mm. um, and uh, previous uh, album uh, Jeff Parker is on this as well. Um, pre- previous mention on the podcast as well, um, and then the, one of the songs on it which I've uh, really been enjoying. I just the album's great. It's another fine example of like disturbing kind of um, um, not quite cartoonish, but like it definitely leans into the tropes of horror. Um, it's definitely camp, yeah, camp, and it's uh, like at times quite funny, but, but as well. bang it yeah. too. So here, here oh, is ninety six Nev Campbell, obviously referencing Scream and all that kind of stuff. So here we go. This is with uh, Cam and China from Clipping. Don't know what you thought this was, but you're gonna have to die about it. Fuck up the place with blood. Who you calling the bitch? This bitch run shit, so you best run. This bitch no play, this bitch no guns This bitch no die, you this bitch son This bitch gon' be the last one This bitch boss Who came for the neck, who next? No mercy, you not shit This bitch boss She came in the game, no flex Finna leave the game with your rep This bitch boss Call her out, her name wrong step Step up, got you, then dip This bitch boss Come in talking that shit And you gon' have to die about it so that was clipping uh, another album if we not that we were gonna we weren't gonna review an album this week but maybe if we had we would have reviewed that one and uh yeah i i I think that album is unbelievable i think it's so spooky and so scary i've been listening to both of those albums a lot this week and just yeah it's been great it's been great and it's a perfect time for it to arrive um and obviously you know the thing about clipping is that you know david diggs is a David Diggs is a originally like probably came to prominence for a lot of people as the uh, in in Hamilton as Lafayette yeah, and yeah. Uh, Thomas Jefferson in Hamilton. So here, if you were wondering what some of those people are up to, uh, well, he is making some dark, uh, disturbing horrorcore inspired music. So. Mm. I wanted to kind of uh, maybe finish uh, on that section asking about if you had any scary songs in your repertoire. I I don't think I've got many that, that we haven't mentioned yet. They're mostly kind of sp- the spooky classical pieces that I was yeah. talking about. But I mean, I I like the classics. I like Monster Mash. I love the um, the song from Hocus Pocus that Bette Midler uh, <laughs> yeah. performs. It, when her her rendition of "I Put a Spell on You" is like I watched it, I was showed it to Harry the other day, um, and I I teared up watching it. I d- don't ask me why, um, but I did because it's just such an amazing song, such an amazing performance. Yeah, um, I can th- I can think of two genuinely else? scary um, albums actually. Um, mm. One that I've written about before oh. and I mentioned maybe here before is from uh, Leyland Kirby, aka the Caretaker. Um, because what's scarier than losing your mind? This is an album called uh, An Empty Bliss Beyond This World from 2010, which is about Alzheimer's. And uh, the interesting thing about this is how it's done. Um, the idea is that patients of Alzheimer's can recollect passage of music from their past and connect them to specific people and places. It helps people remember. Uh, the music becomes a totem for 
memory, something to cling to. But on this album, what Kirby did was take mournful samples of 78 RPM records as the base of remembrance and nostalgia. And then he corrodes those songs over the course of a track to the point where you can no longer hear the melody originally that was really there. Well, I mean, it's so, it's in a way, it's like, it reminds me of The Shining because it's like the ballroom scene in Shining. It has that very, he calls Mm. it haunted ballroom himself. And here's just a, a brief taste of what that sounds like. So it's kind of like wistful old music that degrades over time and there's nothing really as a concept there's not much scarier than that so over the course of an album it kind of these melodies disappear and corrode um like a memory um and the other one i've only recently become aware of um is uh scott walker's album uh drift the drift from 2006 i actually don't think i can listen to it all but have you ever heard any of that stuff it's really unsettling in a way that's like I don't, I don't know. I really want to hear um in full some at some point when I'm when I'm up for it. There's two songs in particular uh, that uh, I was thinking of. Um, there's one on the album called "The Escape," which has some of this. There's there, well, there's two albums. There's two songs uh, in particular. Uh, the Escape is. Uh, incredibly uh, upsetting in lots of ways. Uh, will I play a bit of it? Mm. Um, give you yeah, a flavor of on, it, the escape. Okay. Yeah, go on. I'm ready. There is a big payoff that I'm not going to get to here. Okay. Because it's no spoilers. You and me against the world. You and me against the world. You and me against the world. So that's one of the songs. There's a very disturbing end to that song that won't ruin for you. It's called "Escape" by Scott Walker. If you want to hear it, it's already quite. Uh, Quite oh yes, yes. At the end is uh, quite surprising and uh, uh, mm. upsetting. <laughs> and there's another song from mm. the album called uh, "Jolson and Jones," which is um, has a very uh, also a very similar upsetting sound. Let me see if I can play a bit of this. Gardens with fountains where peacocks had strutted, where dead children were born. The splendor of tigers turning to gold in the desert, pale meadows of stranded pyramids. So, 
there's a lot going on there like a bleating donkey the Ooh. the lyrics uh funny enough there's an irish there's an Didn't irish like connection that. here the uh lyric at the end is i'll punch a donkey in the streets of galway so there you go so that is where i'm gonna leave um, uh the horror for now on the streets of galway sh- punching sure. the donkey so there you go <laughs> um a, co- a couple that came to mind when when you were chatting there. One um, is a kind of a an ambient drone album, very famous. You probably know it. It's called uh, Disin- "The Disintegration Loops" by uh, w- William Bazinski, um, which was released around two thousand and two. And it's basically uh, these recordings of these tape tape loops that um, he was passing from like one tape to another and. Uh, it they gradually start deteriorating over time and they start looping as this kind of like it was like an unexpected thing that he he didn't think was going to happen um while while kind of doing this analog production stuff um they're they're they are unsettling and they had the kind of the the cultural connection of like they were they were completed around the time of 9-11 and stuff so it just they're they are spooky in a way but also quite like um metaphorical and stuff as well and then the other one which we we can't not mention um is the album murder ballads by nick cave and the bad seeds um which you know contain very very scary murdery songs um that you know and and Nick Cave is this obviously this like incredibly charismatic person but he tends to inhabit characters that are really quite scary and his voice is quite scary and he's yeah um it's I I I love 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 that record um also I'll, I'll throw in Red Right Hand as a song that um scared the bejesus out of me the first time I listened to it and I think even still every time I listen to it the first time you hear like that that bell being hit at the beginning of it it just it takes me by surprise every single time and makes me really really afraid so I think like the the kind of tradition of um blues music and its relationship with murder and the devil and the other world is is definitely probably being uh championed best uh in the past few decades by nick cave um who has like a a very kind of interesting and uh interesting fascination with uh the other world and he kind of explores that in in various different ways some of them quite sweet some of them quite somber and some of them just like straight up spooky um he's a spooky guy is nick yeah absolutely Lovely. Okay, I think that concludes our our special on on uh, spooky music yeah. for now, and uh, we yeah. we hope um, from myself and Andrea, we hope you have a very fearful and spooky um, weekend uh, to come. But safe and safe always. Um, <laughs> I guess we need a bit of a palate cleanser after that now maybe um, I wonder mm. what I can play to finish us out um, no don't do a palate cleanser no let's 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 spook them no spook well, like something spooky but not like mm. not like upsetting okay. <laughs> oh <laughs> not, yeah not yeah, punching okay. a, yeah, a donkey in the streets of Galway upsetting um, let's not do yeah. that don't punch donkeys yeah uh, we'll be back uh, with our regular episodes next week and uh, mm-hmm. if you are still looking for something to listen to do go back and listen to our special from Monday Frank called Monday which is uh, uh, the opposite of this episode which is uh, loads a pep talk from 20 Irish artists uh, giving yeah. some advice going into lockdown we are just uh, escaping all of that this week uh, so so 
we'll be back um, if you want to support us in any way it's patreon.com forward slash 909 where you can support us from five or a month and then Andrea who actually we didn't mention you mentioned bonfires earlier on but you put out a piece about bonfires on your Substack. so andreacary.substack.com for uh, subscribing to that where you can also throw Andrea some money and uh, as you heard uh, during that episode she's a lot of uh, things that you know uh, to a lot of uh, knowledge to share uh, in terms of music. Oh, thanks. So, um, well, this this piece was written about my experiences growing up on the north side of Dublin and collecting wood for bonfires and the um, kind of traditional link that I've made between that and Samhain and, and also, crucially, a playlist for your autumn walks. So, yeah, you can go over to andreacleary.substack.com um also this week i did an i guest hosted an episode of juvenalia which is really fun they have me on sometimes when sarah can't make it um and it was with nilo and we talked about pop punk um and the influence it had on him uh so if you want to go and listen to that you can uh nilo's album is out on friday and it's unbelievable listening to it all week go and buy it it's great um that's everything i have to plug i think Good man, Nilo. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. album's out Friday, um, and uh, do enjoy that. Um, and in the meantime, have a lovely spooky weekend. Going to finish with Happy a song, Spooktober, everyone. Yeah, a song called "The Saint Became a Lush." Uh, I think from a band called Psyche, which is a bit like spooky, but a bit of a banger too. Um, so, okay. thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Niall. Thank you for bringing the spook into our lives. And, and you. Um, and have a good weekend and enjoy your. Birthday weekend. Is it your birthday weekend? I will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, birthday's Monday, so yeah. don't email me. <laughs> <laughs> Take the day off, are you? Yeah. Great. That's fun. Great. Okay. okay. Well, we'll chat to you again soon from the 909 podcast. Thank you. Bye.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.